0: been almost two years since i left rotowire and started doing my own thing actually finished up after the super bowl early 22 so year and three quarters maybe so far and it took me a while i think i don't know if i'm through it yet to get used to just being in charge of my entire day in the way that i am i mean it was still like that i was working remotely with rotowire and could do things on my own time for the most part we had the xm show which was scheduled and I had a schedule of columns. and I still maintain a schedule of columns for real man sports. So I was kind of like that, but there's something about having that external paycheck and external obligation to partners and to customers that goes without saying, you just do it. It's funny because the other day, Sasha who plays basketball four times a week, she goes to practice and then she plays once a week in a game. She didn't want to go the other day because it's raining out and she had gotten home in the rain earlier and now she had to go back out again to basketball and she told me she's not going and i said well i think you should go and she said no i'm not going i said well i I think you should go she's like no i'm not going and i want you to say that's fine and i said i'm not going to say that's fine because i think you should go and i could tell she was going to go because she was really worried about whether i gave her my blessing of of quitting and i said look if you want to cut down your practice to three days a week and have that conversation that's fine because." four days a week is probably too much anyway. So if you want to like make that decision, no problem. But if you're intending to go today, you don't just bail the day of, you just show up as you intended, unless there's some sort of emergency. And then, you know, if, if later on you decide in advance that you want to change the schedule around, we can do that. She ended up going, although Heather agreed to drive her instead of taking the Metro and then they got caught in traffic and horrible traffic and they ended up not going anyway but the point was she agreed to go and i was okay with that but i guess what i'm saying is i I just think i'm the kind of person that just shows up does what they're supposed to do more or less maybe with some bitching, maybe being difficult but I, i believe in that like you know you you have the columns you're supposed to write you don't miss a deadline 23 years i didn't miss a deadline every single column was filed every single week because that's my job, and there's people with a lot harder and worse jobs, but <laughs> at least do the job that you have, and that was just sort of the, the ethic of it. And then you, I wouldn't say I retired because I'm still working, but then you lose that structure where you have this obligation, and it's pretty weird. You know, you you feel like you have to get on yourself, like you're you're your own much harsher boss than you've ever had in your life and you need to get this done and that done. And you got to get stuff done, even though you don't, you don't, you could sleep in, you can lounge around the house. You don't have to do anything. There's no immediate consequence to anything, but it took a couple of years. And I, as I said, I don't think I'm totally through yet to just be like, Oh, I'm doing the stuff I want to do. I'm not doing the stuff because I have to do it. That's sort of the fight. Because when you work for someone else or work with someone else or are used to having a job, it's not really a matter of whether you want to do it. I mean, I was actually pretty good about moving in directions within Rotowire toward the things I wanted to do and away from the stuff I didn't like. So by the end, I was basically just talking about my own teams on the radio, uh, talking shit with Jeff, and then just like writing about stuff I was interested in. And that was it. My job was to be myself mostly but still i had to do it on schedule and per deadlines and i had to keep it up in the format that it was in maybe i could have pushed it even further but you when you don't have that you go it's even like another step where you're sort of like okay well what am i doing like what's my my point you can't just be a consumer i mean you can be a consumer but it's empty i mean what's the big you know okay so you have some dopamine from eating this delicious food or going out for drinks or I don't know what, I can't even imagine what I'd be doing if I were just hedonistically thinking, oh, I'm going to go out to like good meals and like party more and smoke weed or do drugs or shroom or go on these ayahuasca journey, you know, all this, that's like a new trendy thing, the ayahuasca trip. I mentioned that before. I, I think it's, I'm not saying that there's not real stuff there. I'm just saying like, If you're some sort of middle-aged person with a midlife crisis, uh, I just, I'm almost positive that, that, yeah, go ahead and do it. I don't think it's going to do anything bad, but I'm almost positive that you are not going to be some different person or put differently. If you see someone who, and and you're like, what'd you do this summer? Like, oh, we went on this ayahuasca journey with this shaman. Your first thought isn't like, oh, they must be so awakened now. I want to learn from this person. You're like, no, this is just a trendy thing that people with money do uh, when they're dissatisfied and want to have an experience to, you know, sort of the, uh, self-help culture that we're in. So I don't know what I would do if I were just chasing dopamine. I don't know what I would do that way. And I think that's what people kind of are up against when they retire, even if they're super rich. I have a friend who lost his job, super rich, doesn't know what he's going to do. I think he was trying to like get on some boards or something. You get paid for being on those boards, but it's like, Why? Why are you on the boards of some random corporations that'll have you just to, I mean, you get paid, but it's like, you don't need the money. You're rich. You're super rich. Actually, this guy, what, like you just, you're so unable to do something meaningful for yourself that you're just doing some random shit for some random corporation, not even for really the money. Just the money's just a justification. Something you could tell other people like, look, I'm doing something. I'm not just sitting on my couch all day watching TV, or going to fancy restaurants, or going golfing all day, or whatever it is I want to do, I'm doing something. There's this uh, TikTok video, it kind of got viral on Twitter, and probably on TikTok, of this girl, uh, she's probably like 20, 22, something like that, and she's complaining in in her very annoying voice about how she's got a full-time nine-to-five job, and it's horrible, and it's not just nine-to-five, because the commute makes it you know, eight to six, and she has no energy for anything else. And people are dunking on her and mocking her. And I saw this one guy, I follow Alan Farrington being like, why are you mocking her? Like, this is a totally valid critique. Everyone's like, go back to the pod, go back to the Borg. You know, don't complain about this. But like, that's no way to live. She's right. She said it in that, not millennial, what are they? Gen Z, that Gen Z sort of affect and you know, the the voice is kind of annoying, but she's totally right. And I felt this when I was young too. Like it's depressing that I have to just get a job and do something for no purpose and just go through my life like this. And this girl went viral complaining about that. Everyone's like, "Uh Oh, we're screwed. These morons won't do things. But really like these kind of nine to five jobs were just school and nine to five jobs. And the way it was set up was just a Get obedient factory workers to produce goods and services. I mean, that's why they were set up that way. These jobs to sit there and get on the production line. And now that you know we're in sort of an information age, and so many of the jobs could be done remotely, and AI is coming to do a lot of it anyway. You know, at least the formulaic stuff, which is most of it. She's absolutely right. Like it's it's not a way to live, and people are mocking her, but. And I felt that from the beginning. But now that I don't have that kind of a job at all, I mean, I didn't really have that kind of job for the last 25 years, but now that I don't have any job that has anybody else, any counterpart, you know, it's like they say, Bitcoin is money without counterparty risk. I don't have counterparty accountability. I mean, I have subscribers to Real Man Sports, but, you know, it says when you subscribe, like, this is not going to be actionable or comprehensive, (laughs) don't expect, don't expect, I still feel an obligation to them, but I, you know, don't expect that this is going to be something that you get something out of. It's just, if you want to subscribe, subscribe. So I don't really have many counterparty obligations. And yet, you know, my drive to do something, to contribute in some way, to have a meaningful participation on the, on this planet uh, is still there. And most people, they only get that through their job, even if it's a stupid job, even if it's a nine to five job, uh, they only get that through that. And they only get their status and who they are and their social status through that. And even me, I, that's, that's what I was trying to say, I guess, in a long winded way, is I left RotoWire when I was RotoWire, and that was my status. I would say to people, What do you do? I run a fantasy sports company with a couple other guys. That was my you know, that's what I, who I was, you know? And so in 2002, when I was at a party and I was single and I was talking to a girl and she asked me what I did. And I said, I work at a fantasy sports company. And then her eyes kind of glazed over. And as I was explaining what that was, I could already feel her like moving away from this conversation. You know, that was before it was a thing. And now, you know, in 2020 or 2021, you said, yeah, I run a fantasy sports company with a couple of guys. People be like, oh, that's cool. It's like internet sports stuff. They would just think it was gambling, actually, if they didn't know what it was. But it was a status, it was a thing. It was a status. It was something. It wasn't that high of status, but it was a status. And now I don't have that. Now I what am I doing? I I talk into a microphone, broadcast my thoughts like some crank, like the unibomber to the world. And then I write about stuff too same thing they're like oh cool cool you're doing that you're doing your own gig you know it's like people's like oh cool i'm writing a book yeah oh cool i'm doing a people say oh yeah what are you doing i'm a writer i'm writing a book oh yeah what have you published no i'm just i'm working on my novel or something that's this is the equivalent now in 2023 i just you know i have a podcast i have a couple of sites you mean a blog yeah it's kind of like a blog air my thoughts to the world that's it right that's all i really do and that you you'd think okay well you don't have a counterparty obligation you can you can do that if you want you can hang out and watch tv if you want and so what happens well i think if you're just like writing that book or doing your podcast or doing your blog you know you write a couple of posts some spiritual posts about your ayahuasca shaman experience and your new supplements that you're taking or your i don't know i was going to do that video of was the video of the five minute mile and then i was gonna do like something about eating on five bucks a day for a month and all these sort of gimmicky things that are in step with the current zeitgeist so those things i feel like are even getting a little passe now themselves like that whole i'll do this challenge and document it for everybody you know i could i could do something like that but What's actually happening is I haven't been drinking for the last couple of months. No, I didn't wake up naked in the park with a dead prostitute. I didn't uh, wrap my car around a tree. I just read this book that I mentioned a few podcasts ago called Alcohol Explained. And it was all stuff I knew, but it just laid it out. It's written not that well, but it's a lawyer, not a writer who wrote it. And he makes very good arguments. The arguments are good. The writing is so-so. And I just was like, it's true. I don't really need this stuff. I, I think a lot of times like smoking a cigar when I used to smoke cigarettes a little bit or dr- having a drink or even a coffee. And I, I haven't had coffee in a couple months. I've been drinking green tea on the rare occasion I go to a coffee shop now. But it's just to have something to be doing. Like if you're at a party and you're smoking, you're doing something while you're talking. Like you're not just sitting there. Or if you're having a drink, you're having a beer, taking sips of it. You're not just sitting there face-to-face with other humans doing nothing. And I went to a party because I had to bring Sasha to this party, and then it was too far away for me to drive there and back twice. Heather was out of town. And I just sat there, mostly Brazilians speaking in Portuguese, some Portuguese people, understanding half the conversation. Some of it, they were talking to me in English. But And then I was just sitting there for a while, no beer, just a glass of water, and I'm thinking, this is kind of weird. I'm just sitting here with a glass of water, <laughs> but like so much of hanging out at a party and drinking or smoking or doing something is is the doing of the thing. It gives you like a a little tick, like a little fidget a fidget spinner. Those things that the kids have, you know, little you know those are those people have those prayer beads they keep rotating their hands all the time. It's like something to fidget with. And it just makes it more socially acceptable. I guess the phone is the big one, right? If you're sitting at a bar or a cafe by yourself, you just look into your phone. And right? if you didn't have your phone and just looking around at everybody at the coffee shop, you know, you're waiting for your coffee, looking around, taking it in, being there, People be like, who's that fucking weirdo? It's it's like you don't have that, you don't have that like crutch or that that thing to use to mask the social awkwardness of just being around other people without any sort of excuse any sort of like well here's what i'm doing i'm doing this and maybe that's just what your job is right it's like your your job is kind of the same thing it's funny i picked up sasha from school yesterday and her friend wanted a ride so i gave her a ride too and she was saying something about the school and i was like you know the school is just some place we drop you guys off to, to store you we don't I don't really, we don't really care what you're learning there. We just put you there so we can do our jobs and do things. And Tasha's friend is pretty funny. And she was laughing about it. She's like, you're saying you just, you just put us there. Like it's a, I said, yeah, I put Oscar at his dog camp, you know, and we put you at the school. That's what it was. We were picking up Oscar from his dog farm that he goes to a couple of times a week. And she was talking about that. And I was like, yeah, it's just like you guys. We drop you off at the, at the person farm, the school, and then we pick you up. She's like, it's just babysitting. Then is what you're saying? I said, pretty much. But the same thing, you know. You're at a party. You have a, a phone, or a cigarette, or a beer, or a cigar, or something. You're, it's just, it's just some prop. You know, you have a job. It's just some prop to make you feel like there's something going on. You know, we say you're going to school and you're learning all this stuff, but you're really just going somewhere. You know, and you, you got this job, and it's who you are and your status. And I work for this, and I'm trying to get that, and I'm, I've updated my resume and. It's just a prop. That's all it is. And so I've had a couple of years and find myself, wait, I'm not drinking, even though I remember when I went to college, I was like, holy shit, I can drink every day if I want. Like there's no one's going to get me in trouble. It's my choice. It's like, holy shit. And I availed myself of that quite a bit. It was like, oh, I can just get stoned every day. This is amazing. Like nobody's, I don't have to deal with anything instead to go to school or to class. Then you learned how to minimize the work there figure out what classes were easy to take. You you thought the key to life was to keep that dopamine going and to avoid work, avoid stress, avoid unpleasant experiences. And now, you know, you're an adult and you sold the company and you don't have a job. And it's like, wait, I stopped drinking? Stopped drinking coffee for a bit? I go to the track three times a week. Oh, you must love running. Running's great. No, I fucking hate running like everybody else. Running is horrible. I just sit there and I focus on how painful it is, even though it's not that painful. It's just psychologically painful. I'm just in a psychological war with myself, trying to avoid, trying to figure out how many laps I have left, counting down the laps versus just being like, what's this discomfort in my chest? Why is it that I want to avoid this so badly? And I'm sitting there in the morning like, okay, it's time to go to the, get on the Metro, walk three blocks in my shorts. Even if it's chilly out, it actually hasn't been that chilly out, but it will get a little chilly in the mornings. Get on the Metro and the crowded Metro and take it to the college and walk to the college and go in through the dank entryway and to the track, which is surrounded by this like urban, not very nice neighborhood and start running on the hard track that's not very nice. The building, It's not a college campus like, like Princeton or something like that or Stanford or something. It's some ugly ass urban Portugal college campus and the track isn't very nice. But I go and I do my lap I'm out in the sun and I'm sweating and I'm running and I don't really like it any more than anyone else likes it. But this is my job. I feel like it's my job, just like Sasha shouldn't skip basketball. It's time to run. I'm going to go. And I just don't want to do it. And it may be raining out even. And I just am like, okay, this is just discomfort. This is just something I don't like. This is unpleasant. And there's no dopamine in it, right? There's no, I mean, there is when I'm like, oh, I've, I've done a mile. I've done two miles. I've done three miles. Maybe a little mini amount of it from my thoughts, but that's also suffering because it's just like, I'm like desperate to like tell myself I'm doing well, even though I'm in this unpleasant situation of running. And it's just the whole thing of like, why not go out and drink? Why not go out and buy some fancy food? But like, why, what's that gonna do? Nothing, it's gonna do nothing for me. And every unpleasant feeling I have, this feeling of angst, this feeling of, okay, I'm on the subway again, I'm in the dank Metro with the weird people on the subway that I'm gonna, in these crowds of people, and then I'm gonna go out and go to the dank college. Then I walk home. I love the walk home because I feel like so good after the run and it's not even a nice walk, but I like it every single time streets like disrupted by construction and these like shitty buildings and the walking under the, uh, subway on overpass and like the whole thing It's like, I like it. I like the whole thing. I like, I, I don't like the ugliness of it, but I like the ugliness of it. I don't, I kind of understand in some ways like the whole brutalism architecture, like they never should have done it. It's horrible. There's a lot of it here, it's just disgusting. It's like this like Soviet era, sort of just everything's concrete and ugly with not many windows. But I understand the spirit of the asceticism of it, the the not wanting things to need to be nice in order to have a real experience, the grit of it. And I'm just starting to value that more, You know, just the feeling of something, the feeling of having to walk Oscar at night when I don't wanna leave the house go down the stairs, might be raining. It's just a feeling of something. And it's not really that important whether it's a feeling of like, oh, look at this delicious food. It's so good. Or "Ah, what a great cigar. Or what a a good bottle of wine or whatever it is. It doesn't really matter whether you're feeling that feeling or the feeling of like, all right, I'm climbing up another flight of stairs with a dog or I'm, you know, walking out in the park and 1130 at night What difference does it make? It's just, it's just experience. Like it's not better to feel good or worse to feel bad. Feeling bad itself is not bad. Feeling bad is bad. But if you feel like what it feels like to feel bad, it's not bad. It just feels. It's just this feeling. And feeling good feels good. But if you feel like what it feels like to feel good, it's just feeling. It's just a feeling. It's not a big deal. It's just this makes you feel good. This makes you feel bad. It doesn't matter. And I don't know, I, I, I don't know, I don't know how far I'm going to take this, to be honest. It feels good. It feels grounded. It feels like all I got to do is turn on the microphone and talk and edit and get it out there as best I can and then write something as best I can. And that's it. And that's my job. And now I don't feel as much like, what am I doing? What's my status? Oh, I, I talk, I'm just some crazy person who talks in the microphone about crazy shit. And that's it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what someone might think of that. It, you know, what matters is, is this message real? Listen to Michael Saylor I got this interview question. Michael Saylor is the Bitcoin guy. Some people think he's a CIA spook, and maybe he is. I don't fucking know. He makes, he's the most articulate person in making the case for it. I'm going to talk about Bitcoin in a bit. But they asked him, what question do you want to be asked that you have never been asked? And he answered the question he wanted to be asked is what are you doing to improve the world? And he answered, what I'm doing is buying Bitcoin. That's what I'm doing to improve the world. And what I liked about that is most of these rich tech guys or CEOs, they want to improve the world. They actually want to fight climate change or create social justice or some virtue. They want to like, do something for which they can be praised. And what Michael Saylor said is I'm just doing the thing I want to do that I believe in from first principles. And that's what I think is improving the world. And and I feel like that too. Like I'm just saying the shit I think is true. I don't fucking know who agrees with me. I don't fucking know if people care. I do get feedback now. And then that people are like, ah, oh, I connected with what you said. And I really thought about that or it changed my perspective on this. I get that. And I like that. But In the end, I don't know the, you know, the net result of this is, or I can't prove to anybody that this is a good use of my time or that this is different than sitting on the couch or playing golf. I really can't prove that, but, but I feel it internally that it is, you know, I can't prove it, but I feel it. And I just feel like this is it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, they say, what are you doing to improve the world? Saying what's on my mind. That's what I'm doing to improve the world. Saying what's on my mind. Do I know that it's good? No. Do I know that I'm a good guy? No, I don't. I just know what's on my mind and that I want to say it. And that that saying it feels like it's something that is real to me. It's fulfilling to me. That's it. That's all I got. You know, It doesn't really matter if it leads to me being rich and being able to buy more grass-fed steaks and fancy hotels and whatever things the world has to offer. I, I don't I don't know if that really matters. You know, I like to get money. I want to have money because I want to have more freedom. I want more money because it just is bigger buffer against not being able to say what I want to say, not being able to express myself in the way that seems fulfilling, right? So the flip side of that is if this feels like it's right, then being prevented from this because if not, I want to have a job, that feels wrong. So that's the reason to make money. And that's why I want to make as much money as I can to have as much of a buffer as I can. And we're still trying to build these houses. We still don't have the fucking permits for these houses in Portugal. And I want to sit here with a studio, a podcast studio, and I want to have my sauna and I want to have my swimming pool, which will probably be unheated. And I want to go in the sauna. And I want to jump in the cold pool. Then I'll tread water. I used to tread water for exercising. It's the easiest exercise. So half an hour, just tread water in your own pool. Feel good afterwards. Less. uh, jarring than running although the running i'm I'm into now i mean i hate it i fucking hate it don't get me wrong i hate it just as much as you hate it but i'm just into the idea of it the running just the doing of it i'm not even trying to improve i used to be into it because i was like oh if i run these intervals and sprint here and i still run intervals and do some stuff but now i do the minimum intervals Ah, that's not true sometimes i'll i'll tack on an extra one but i'm not trying to push it i'm just trying to do the minimum amount that i agreed to do and not too much more, because I want to go back every week. And it's just like, you know, not drinking or not smoking cigarettes. It's like, it's not that I wouldn't want a cigarette or a drink. It's that in the end, it doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything important. And overall, you're happy not to have it. You're happier, you're freer, you feel better. And just running is the opposite. It's like, it's not like I like it. It's not like, and I don't even want to force myself. It's just a routine now. I just go, I get on the subway. It's my job. I go and I could change my job. Just like I told Sasha, she could change her basketball schedule, but as long as it's still my job and I haven't like thought it through and made a change, I just get the fuck on the subway. I put my running shoes on. I walk down the stairs and I know it's over. I mean, it's over through a lot of pain and discomfort and bitching in my mind, but it's over. I've, once I make the decision to go out the door, it's over. It's done. I'm there. I'm going to do it. It's done. Let's have a heart attack, which obviously I haven't had yet. So I don't know. It's just some shit that I'm dealing with just going through and and it's funny like the more I'm like actually I don't give a shit anymore actually I don't need to I'm farther away from being on a schedule than I was a year ago even and ironically the more freedom I have the more I'm doing shit that like I would be forcing myself to do like running and not drinking and like just you know doing stuff I think I I think I got to get off Twitter for good pretty soon it should be called instead of X it should be called A N x capital x i e t y anxiety because whenever i'm on anxiety for too long i just feel anxious and i was writing about this on noster but basically like i was running the other day and my running it varies like day to day week to week like whether i feel good like i could run 10 miles or whether i feel like the four miles is a lot or whether the intervals are just really rough on a particular day and i've had you know i said this before like some exercise induced asthma if that's a thing and you know and maybe I'm sensitive to certain foods or inflammatory stuff or pollens or who the fuck knows, but sometimes I'm more winded more than I should be. And sometimes it feels easy. And I was thinking that, uh, the other day, and you know, I talked about how like underneath the sort of feeling that makes you not want to run is like an anxiety for me. It's like, I want to push myself too hard or maybe there's just an underlying anxiety that you get in touch with when you're sweating and moving and breathing deeply. And it's almost like, I felt shitty Wednesday because I was on Twitter Tuesday. And so I had more anxiety. So it was like even the slightest bit of a sweat and deeper breathing started to like bring up this added anxiety I had because I'd been on that site so much with all the doom that's there. You know, these these social media sites are kind of like the internal workings of the societal mind. It's like society's mind that you're into and society's mind is very anxious now. And you get it. You pick up on the anxiety. And, you know, you transfer your anxiety to your, to your spouse or your kids. I mean, of course, like your anxiety rubs off on the people around you. And then when you're on social media, you're picking up all that anxiety. And I felt like my running was harder, not because I ate something, not because something, something I uh, ingested, you know, via my digestive system, but something that I had absorbed through my mind was making me more anxious. I don't know. That could just be bullshit. But that's what I was thinking. But, the whole, but the, anyway, my, my whole point of this whole thing is kind of like, there's this quest for dopamine and it's kind of like, it, dopamine may not even be technically right. Whatever that feeling is, like, oh, good. Like when your dog, you say to your dog, good boy. And your dog seems to like that, trained to like that. We're all kind of like that, right? We did something right. We got food. We got sugar from our parents. We got praise. And it ends up you know, converting into social status as an adult. Society likes me. People like my tweet. People are following me on Twitter. People are reading my Substack, listening to my podcast. All these likes. I'm an important person. Or at least I can defend myself status-wise. I'm not a total loser. I feel good about myself in the eyes of other people. All this stuff, all this dopamine, it's all just sort of in your own mind. Like, oh, I feel good. I feel good. And how, how much that's tied into your job and all of that. And then you give up the job. And you're like, great, I can go party. But you're like, I don't really want to do that. Uh, I don't need it anymore. I'm not escaping from anything. We're going on this trip starting Saturday. I may not be broadcasting next week because we're on the road just because Sasha has a break and I'm not really even looking forward to it. You know, I'm like, why am I leaving my regular life? I don't need to escape. Supposedly, it's a cool place. I'm sure I'll like it. I always like dread these trips and then we go and it's like, cool. And I'm glad I went. But it's like, there's nothing to escape from. I mean, there's a monotony to it. I mean, the running is fucking hell. I mean, I hate running more than you do. You th- I don't just dislike running as much as you do. I, I hate it more than you do. And I, and I do it. But there's just something about it when you're just in it. It's just, is that, and that's just good. There was a, uh, some Buddhist monk said, there are two kinds of suffering, the kind that leads to more suffering and the kind that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to experience the latter, you'll surely have more of the former. And that's just kind of how I feel. Like if you're just avoiding that dopamine depleted, or again, I don't want to get technical on it because it's not important whether it's technically dopamine, that depleted of praise and pleasure state where nobody's liking your tweets and nobody's, and you're not eating that tub of ice cream or whatever it is, and you're not getting that feel good feeling that you want. If you're not willing to suffer the opposite of that, what's actually going on in the moment uh, then you're just going to have the suffering that leads to more suffering. If you're not willing to take on the truth of what's going on without these distractions and these small pleasures, you again, I have nothing against it. I still eat ice cream. I, I have one cigar left. I think I'll smoke that, and that'll be that. I still taste the booze when we're out. I'll taste the glass of wine. I don't, I'm, it's not like one of those things. You know, I don't, I'm not like, oh, I've been sober for X amount of time. I don't give a shit. It's not even about that. It's just, what's the point? There's no point to it. Anyway, I was thinking about that. I There's a guy, Scott Adams. Some of the stuff he says is, is interesting, but he, he said, you know, there's that phrase, follow the money, you know, follow the money. And you'll see like, you know, what's going on Pfizer. Like why, why do they mandate the, the shot? We'll follow the money. He said, follow the dopamine and the world makes more sense. It's not just money. Money's, you know, a form of dopamine. If you make a bunch of money, People send you likes, that's good. If people send you cash, that's better, because you're not just getting dopamine from the cash, but then you also can use the cash to create freedom. But dope but the cash and the dopamine are connected. Said so follow the dopamine, and I think that's somewhat true, but it's a bit cynical. I feel like the guy is a bit cynical. I feel, feel like there's a lot of cynicism among people who sort of claim to be realists, because that is true that there's everyone chasing the dopamine, all these authority figures and politicians want to win their elections and they want to be respected and they want to, you know, be thought of positively from their peers. That's all this status competition. That's really just dopamine trading, but it's cynical because I don't really think that's where the real life is. I don't really think it's in that small Ws of pleasure or validation. I think that's actually where the distraction and is what, the reason it's not just Twitter for anxiety. I want to quit. It's just these things are dopamine machines, just as the processed food manufacturers made Doritos or M and M's to have that particular crunch, the salt, sugar, and M and M's, the crunchiness and tanginess of Doritos. By the way, I'm not responsible if you go on a Doritos binge because I described them this way. But these are like these food scientists of sorts, um, trying to hook kids who are the most impressionable and form habits and. Younger people onto these products, and they do a lot of research and a lot of experimenting to to get them just so to get you hooked. And and obviously, social media is just the same. You know, they want you hooked so the advertisers can pay them more money because you're you're scrolling more, you're on the site more, you're you know you they just want you hooked to the site so they can get those advertising dollars. And the way they do that is through dopamine. And they found out with like rats, like if you want a rat to get truly truly do what it is you want him to do, you give him some like cocaine every, at every random amount of doing the thing that you want him to do. You don't give it to him every five, you know, taps of his paw. You do it, you have it randomized so that it could be five, it could be three, it could be 20. He doesn't know when it's coming. That's the most effective. And social media is really good at that, right? Because you could have a post that goes viral and then you might not have another one for six months. And you know, or you might never have one. I mean, viral for someone like me, you know, getting like a few hundred likes or something. And they might not have another one for a couple of months. And so you're trying and you're trying and you know, the rewards there, you just don't know when it's coming. And it's set up like that. It's all set up like that. And, and you get these little rewards and these little validations of what you think and stuff. And, you know, you could spend all day doing that, just like you could spend all day smoking crack or doing heroin or playing video games and just do nothing with your entire life. Never actually experience what's true about anything. And so I don't know. The social media, it's like good for, well, get your stuff out there. But what does it even matter? I mean, what, you know, it's like people, if they enjoy this, they'll they'll listen to it again. Maybe they'll tell people. Maybe they won't. I don't know. I don't control it. So and what's, you know, what's the, you know, you put it out there. I don't know. What's the, uh, what's the payoff here? What's the, you get rich off of just speaking your thoughts with no advertisers. I don't think so. I am mean, the shill for uh, Doritos, Doritos calls me up, says, hey, I'll give you a million dollars. I really want to advertise on the Chrysalis podcast. Do the Doritos read. I'd be like, uh, I can't really do Doritos. Maybe something else, something healthy. But even then, so I don't know. Uh, it's getting to the point where. I've got to think, I I don't want to just flush it, you know, the the connections are are valuable, but maybe I should just look at it really less and less. The one good thing about Twitter, as I said, it's the only remaining search engine. The other search engines are dead. Twitter actually, you can get information, past information if you're writing something, so it has some use. But I had an idea about, you know, sort of math equations, simple like Y equals X squared. So the input is three x is 3, so y is 9, right? So the input is 3, the output is 9. Or you could say f of x equals x squared, but y is simpler. But the point is, you know, the input is 3, and then you run it through the function, and then you get 9. Input is 5, you run it through the function, the output is 25. And you can kind of do that with, like, logical propositions too, I guess, right? Like you'd say, like, if the input is... A true proposition, then the output is I believe that. And if the input is a false proposition, then the output is I don't believe that. And if the input is something you're not sure is true or false, then the output is I don't know. And then you get to that that Bayesian thing that I was talking about, which is probably not even correctly Bayesian a couple of podcasts ago where you're, you know, you have these priors and you update them based on your agnostic, but you have some probabilistic belief and you update it based on information that comes in. But you can imagine a model of just a basic model like that of like, I believe it. If it's true, I believe it. If it's false, I don't believe it. And if I'm not sure if it's true or false, then I assign some sort of probability to it, or I'm just agnostic. And that's that. And that's how it goes. And you think that seems like a pretty normal description of how beliefs are formed, but it's actually not. It's actually the exception that a belief would be formed that way. And I wrote a piece called belief about Charles Peirce's fixation of belief and how a belief's just a habit that replaces a doubt and basically you have this feeling a lack of dopamine a feeling of anxiety a feeling of just existential angst or being or whatever it is and it's uncomfortable for you and so you you know this is what i think you know you see something on twitter and you think this is what i think this is what i stand for this is what i believe and so your belief isn't really so much of whether something's true it's whether the thing you believe Has a function for you. It's more utilitarian. It's more, I have a doubt and this belief displaces the doubt. Now you're not doing that consciously. The doubt is actually painful. It's the same reason when I'm running around the track and I'm feeling some sort of discomfort and I think, okay, I'm three quarters of the way there. I'm four fifths of the way there. I'm six sevenths of the way there. I'm seven eighths of the way there. These things are not because, well, I mean, it is also true, those things when I'm doing them, but I'm thinking those things because it's displacing the feeling of discomfort. It's telling me in my brain, you don't have that much more discomfort left. It's giving me uh, a resolution to the, you know, the feeling of, ah, oh, this is painful, this is painful. How much more do I have left? And essentially the argument that he makes, and I think it's persuasive, is that people just put beliefs in where they have doubts, where they're unsure and uncertainty is dis- is uncomfortable and it's more comfortable. And then you take that even further and then you start to put the beliefs there that not only make you less uncomfortable, but that make you feel good. So instead of you know, the equation, if true, I believe it. If false, I don't believe it. It's if it makes me feel good, I believe it. If it makes me feel bad, I don't believe it. And then once that's your setup, which I think it is for the majority of people, at least it can be. I think we have two parallel tracks. We have the track that's I want to believe what's true i don't want to believe what's false and then we have the i want to believe what makes me feel good and i think we all have both of these tracks i don't want to believe the things that make me feel bad and so then on that track which is kind of like the carbohydrates track right the ketosis is like i just believe what's true i don't believe what's false but the the carb track that when you're burning carbs it's more like i like this and so food scientists can figure out, you know, how to make you want this food that's not good for you. Well, the nudge units in the, whether it's the deep state or social media or just advertisers that want more clicks or the the social media engineers that are trying to service the advertisers and get them the clicks, you know, they will want to prey upon that. This feels good. I want more of it. You know, this, I agree with this. So I'm going to stay on this. So if you're, believing what makes you feel good and you're, you're trying to only look at content that makes you feel good they're gonna figure out based on your patterns what makes you feel good and you'll get more of it or actually it seems like what makes you feel angry and outrage and give you more of that because sometimes maybe that you know is more effective at keeping you hooked what makes you feel good may be the motivation but you may be looking at things that make you feel bad so that you can then, do something about it, post about it, rant about it, do something that makes you feel better. And of course, I often cite um, things on Twitter that I don't like and then comment on them on Twitter or on this podcast. So I've definitely, that's part of the reason I'm like, maybe I should just get off that fucking, that hamster wheel. They're giving me like a bunch of cocaine every so often, but it's, I don't know if that's a good trade-off. But anyway, uh, it, it was making me think about it, these two kind of tracks. Like one of them is, sort of the the truth track. And the other one is the feel good track. And, you know, which track are you on? And I, I do think like that, you know, maybe that's the story of Adam and Eve with the apple, you know, the apple is uh, sugar carbohydrate and, and the fall from grace was getting on the dopamine track on the pleasure track, rather than the track that's just sort of more what's true, what's real, what's the case. I think everything that's happened is necessary. So even if the fact that we're we have the carbs and we have the, the dopamine and we have the Twitter and we have the junk food and we have the drugs and everything else and the porn. I think all of that stuff is probably for a reason because if you can choose not to to have it voluntarily, I think then choosing the, the truth, choosing to believe what's true, choosing to stick with what's true is more powerful than pre-Adam and Eve, pre-fall, pre-original sin where... You're just sort of in this default state um, where you don't. You're not even exposed to the falsehoods. You're not even exposed to the lies. So it's sort of like the, the serpent is doing a service in a way because you you can't shoot if you if you're just defaulting to God or the Tao or the truth or whatever you want to call it, then you you really haven't um, you haven't gone anywhere, right? You're just it's just okay. It's great. Life's beautiful. You're in the Garden of Eden. Good for you. But if you're in sort of the fallen world and you can create the Garden of Eden within it, then the kingdom of heaven lies within. I mean, I think that's the sort of the deeper deeper understanding of it. And I remember, you know, when I wanted to see this Buddhist monk that I've talked about when I was like 22, he uh, trained to be an engineer. But instead, for some reason, he ended up meditating on a mountain for like nine years. And he was definitely the real deal. And he laughed. He said, I should have been an engineer. He's like, I should have done that. That, was, that would have been the better thing to do. And he said something about, you know, being in the world is more, it's like you learn a deeper lesson in some ways by being surrounded by all this dopamine. You can be a monk. There's nothing wrong with that, where you kind of withdraw from all of the influences, all of the possible sources of this stuff. But you get even deeper understanding if you kind of, I think, experience it and see where it leads to. Uh, Ram Das, It was another one of those uh, 1970s, 1980s Western. So I think it was a Harvard professor who went and decided to uh, spend a bunch of years in an ashram. And he said he used to be sitting there and he would long for being back on his college campus with wine and women and, you know, live music and smoking weed and taking some LSD or whatever. And, And then he went through it, you know, step by step, all the things that would happen. And then he realized he'd be back, you know, in that ashram before long, having experienced all of it all over again. He sort of took himself through the whole process of what brought him there. And I think that is like a a deep understanding of, of it rather than just sort of never dealing with it, never seeing it. So it's interesting, you know, it's not axiomatic that, it seems axiomatic that, you know, if true, then believe. If false, then don't believe. But you know, you can easily say, if it makes me feel good, believe. If it makes me feel bad, don't believe. And it's sort of an act of faith that, no, 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 the truth equation is better. It'll serve you better in the long run. The feel-good equation may serve you better in the very short run. And then even then, when you understand it, it doesn't even serve you in the short run. You don't even enjoy it. It's not even worth it. Um, but the truth one is the, is the only one that makes any sense. And I don't want to get too into like the paleo carb thing. Cause I don't really, you know, I, I, I'm dubious even of that. I think, you know, maybe it's hard to imagine that fruit on a tree or an apple is, is terrible for you. Um, even though some of the hardcore low carb people think fruit is bad, I guess if you sit around all day, it's not ideal to be eating a ton of fruit, but if you're active, but anyway, it's just an interesting parallel that your body literally burns two different kinds of fuels. You know, it can burn sugar and it can burn fat and, you know, and and your mind can run on two different kinds of truths. You know, you could be like, I believe what's true, or it could be like, I believe what feels good. And the thing is, nobody will admit that they believe what feels good, right? Like if you say to somebody who's completely just believe whatever their tribe believes, whatever they're rewarded for and incentivized for, and you ask them, you know, did covid leak from a lab and they're like that's a conspiracy theory man let it go it's obviously zoonotic it's crazy people saying that and you know do they believe that they they think it's true what they believe but they don't realize that the basis for which they hold that belief is because it's advantageous because their tribe believes it and the people i mean i don't even know if it's advantageous that one anymore it's so crazy but there are people i saw a guy on twitter acting like it was ridiculous to think there's a lab leak but i think most of these beliefs you know, when you see somebody who clearly just believes everything without much deviation that they're supposed to believe, then you get sort of this, you get the sense that, you know, they're just believing what has rewarded them and it makes them feel good and they stand up for their cause in a way that makes them feel good rather than what's true. But, but in the end, I think it does come down to a kind of faith of like, you know, believing what's true is best. Believing what's real is in the long run going to help me in not like an instrumental way but in just sort of a long-term deeper more pervasive way and that even if that leads to less praise or people not approving of you or your status being diminished in other people's eyes that that feeling that you that you're left with that's not the dopamine praise feeling that's a good feeling that feeling that i get on the track when i'm running it's a good feeling it's not a comfortable feeling it's not a Pleasant feeling, but it's a good feeling. And I remember I used to try to do this in blackjack. I used to like play the low minimum bat blackjack and like try to enjoy losing, enjoy when I had 20 against a six and the dealer pulls a long five card 21 and be like, that's good. Like, I'm not attached to outcomes. That's good. That was enjoyable. That was a really good pull by the dealer, you know, just being like, yeah, that was great. Or, you know, winning in blackjack and being like, there's nothing special about that. I just got lucky, you know, just reversing the normal uh, conditioning of I need to have things that are pleasant, and I don't want things that are unpleasant. Now, you needed that in evolutionarily to survive, obviously, you need to eat the thing that tasted good and not eat the thing that tasted super bitter and poisonous. And, and that was a good guide. And so we evolved to seek pleasure, avoid pain. But now that our survival is not Based on that, it's actually the opposite, right? If you eat the Doritos and the Oreos and the things that have been engineered for your pleasure centers, you actually are going to drop dead a lot earlier. And if you listen to mainstream advice about nutrition and medicine and what injections to take, you're probably going to die a lot earlier. Um, and so it's sort of the opposite, right? Like learning to deal with like learning to deal with discomfort or being ostracized or being disliked. Uh, is is actually going to help your long-term well-being and not just physical health but spiritual mental health you know the the ability to endure whatever what, you know you're not you're not enslaved to people's approval and yeah it's just what i've been thinking about all right i want to talk about some more uh, topical stuff too first off like you know there's the whole world war 3 thing and i've been a little bit guilty of thinking yeah they're going to pivot to world war 3 Because, I mean, if you had debased the money supply this badly and siphoned off so much for yourself such that you replaced real money with digital bits in an online account that don't really buy what they purport to, and you had also mandated a medicine that poisoned billions of people, and now the truth is starting to trickle out, and it's going to be common knowledge just like the lab league is before long, and you had, or your cohorts had... uh, Enabled or participated in or availed yourself of an underage sex trafficking ring, and that's going to come out eventually too. Most likely, I mean, World War III isn't sounding that bad under those circumstances, right? I mean, like you've fucked up so badly that doing something just extreme, rolling the dice on something crazy, um, starts to become more rational from that point of view. You know, if you're if you lose your queen in chess, um, you know, you may do some desperate, crazy stuff. Uh, You may just like blitzkrieg the opponent because you're probably going to lose. It's like you're, if you just trade pieces, he's going to grind you down anyway. You've already lost. And so it's not that far fetched that, you know, they would, they probably don't say it this way, but that ratcheting it up more and more is, it, it becomes rational almost from their perspective. And that obviously gives talking about that kind of stuff is anxiety provoking because, you know, World War, it's not just like, a couple of uh enemies across the world battle each other and you sit out of it i mean it's like supply and i mean you know forget about the nuclear thing and all the death but just you know you're not going to have like supply of energy and goods and services i mean it's going to disrupt society there's going to be you know massive poverty and um and displacement of people you're not you're not going to just be able to go about your life so but in one way you know it's like adds anxiety and stress this whole like world war iii is going to be so fucked but on the other you know we're sort of handicapping a football game at halftime or before a game we're saying this is what's going to happen and they're going to do this and that's going to happen and this is going to lead to that and we don't fucking know it's a complex system it's impossible to predict and there's just massive seismic things that could happen that alter the course of it you know there's a pick six changes everything right you thought the game was going one way suddenly it's going the other way and there will be pick sixes and hopefully it's for the team you bet on not the team you bet against or the team that you know that you're rooting for and and you know one of them is bitcoin because bitcoin just ramped up a few thousand dollars the other day and it's at like and about 34,000 as i record this right now and it went up 5,000 despite this guy made this estimate estimated like 70 something million in in extra purchases he was saying like you know the all these ETFs coming down the pipe, like BlackRock and these other companies that are filing for ETFs are probably trying to seed those ETFs. He estimated a certain amount of purchasing from that, the regular purchasing from people. And he's like, okay, so th- there's a certain amount of demand that came in and it went up you know, X amount of billions of dollars in market cap from that. You're talking about for every dollar that was invested, $193 of added market cap accrued to the Bitcoin network. And so if you're dealing with like a 200 to one ratio uh, in terms of money put in and price price appreciation, it gets pretty crazy when you think about, Up, oh, they're coming for me. I don't know if you guys can hear that siren. They're coming for me. This is the last podcast. I'll see you guys later. So saying, how do you get a $200 billion ETF going? How do you buy 200 billion worth if the ratio is 200 to one? right? 200 billion times 200 is what? It's 40 trillion. So you're talking about already a market cap that has something like 2 million per Bitcoin. And so this, and this is just the ETF, right? This is not nation states like El Salvador is already in if Paraguay or some of the other ones in Mexico that have been talking about it started getting in in this competition. Like we got to get some other corporations and of course, everybody else FOMOing in. So he's like, you know, people are maybe vastly underestimating the upside. But you know, regardless of you know of that, and there's been a lot of outlandish bullish predictions before that didn't come to pass, at least not yet, even if it got to you know half a million a coin or whatever, you're going to have a dramatic shift in power in the world because the people that own a lot of this stuff um are going to be suddenly extremely rich and powerful. And so the people, who are calling the shots are going to change, right? There's only a certain amount of actual goods, services, technology, and energy in the world at any given time. There's sort of a a GWP, gross world product in total. I don't think that's a real term. I think I just made that up. And like, so let's say that's like, I don't know, half a quadrillion, whatever it is. There's only like a certain amount of wealth in the whole world. So you can grow the wealth certainly over time, but In the short term, there's just sort of a zero sum game where if if Bitcoin is going up by some ridiculous amount, then it is redistributing the wealth from the state to the individuals that own it. And that could be a very seismic, powerful shift where, you know, the dollar doesn't buy as many weapons as it used to. The euro doesn't buy as many weapons as it used to. The Chinese currency doesn't buy as many weapons as it used to. And all of a sudden, they're just not able to wage the wars they want to wage. They're not able to pay the troops. They're not able to fund the policies they want to fund. They just basically get defunded because it's sort of like having a boat with a leak in it. If they can just use CBDCs and keep all of the wealth inside the fiat system, then they can siphon off as much as they want to themselves. And they can um, just sort of by taxing and inflating, just take away the collective wealth of the populace and direct it toward themselves and their cronies. But if there's an out, if there's a leak in that boat and it's going into an uncensorable, uncontrolled, decentralized protocol like Bitcoin, then all of a sudden they can't control it. They're losing control over the wealth. The wealth of the world is distributed, right? And there's 7, 8 billion people and everyone has their bit of wealth and everyone has their whatever power they have. But the ledger that that tells everybody who owns what is controlled by a few people. And as long as they have full control over the ledger, um, they can basically manipulate it how they see fit. Your bank balance has a number on it, but it doesn't buy what it purports to buy. If they just double the amount of money in circulation and and hand a bunch of it to their friends via stealth means like inflation and those friends own property, and they're basically getting more, you know, more goods and service value, then your bank account is worth less. And they have total control over the ledger. But Bitcoin is an independent ledger. And if people start gravitating to that ledger, all of the ways in which they mark the ledger as having themselves rich and you poor or you powerless and them powerful, that changes instantly. Just the ledger gets moved, right? I mean, we're talking about, oh, but they have the weapons, the guns. They have the guns and weapons only if they can pay the people with the guns and the weapons, only if they can pay for the guns and weapons, if they can deploy them, feed them, supply them. All of that stuff costs money. All of that money comes from the ledger. If the ledger suddenly says, if the real ledger that people care about suddenly says, you know, you don't really have that much. Your trillion dollars is worth much less in Bitcoin than it was a year ago. And Bitcoin is now the standard. This is now going to be. Measurement, the universal one that's transnational. And so, you know, things like this can seismically shift the power balance in the world without a shot fired. And this is why it's so dangerous to the state. But at the same time, it's so dangerous for them not to get involved because El Salvador is a tiny little country no one cares about. But if Mexico were to buy some, you know, MicroStrategy is a small company that bought a ton. And I, I read a great Twitter post that was like, Dude, Michael Saylor two years ago had a huge conference for all the CFOs and CEOs of big companies. And they came and they heard his presentation, and barely any of them bought any. They were too constrained by their boards, too constrained by their policies, by their lack of imagination. And now Saylor has like 150,000 Bitcoin in MicroStrategy. And I don't think Apple can ever get 150,000. I don't think they'll ever get there. I don't think you can do it anymore. I think if you. Try to buy 150,000 by the time you buy 10,000, you're putting the price into stratospheric levels. I think time you try to buy 50,000, and if Apple's going in, then Google's going in. If Google's going in, then Facebook's going in. And you're going to have this thing where nobody can buy more than a little bit. And you're going to see that MicroStrategy got in early and probably Michael Saylor. And he, you know, I don't know if Saylor's a good guy or not. I don't really think of good so much. I think of, you know, somebody. Speaking the truth, is somebody making sense? Is somebody convincing? Is somebody saying things that that I that I can sort of vet based on first principles? And with him, it's usually yes. But again, I'm not vouching for him per se. I'm just saying it's gonna be pretty crazy if this starts happening. And there's just a fixed supply. I mean, that's the thing. You can't just buy more of it. You can't just be like, well, we're Apple and we're worth, you know, three trillion dollars, so we're just gonna buy this much. If you start buying it, the price runs away from you. So I think it's very interesting or an interesting point. I think the stat I heard, and there's probably 50 million now, but a couple of years ago, there were 40 million millionaires in the world. they are only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin. So if anyone owns a whole coin, that's going to be more rare than being a millionaire is now. Much more rare because many people have many coins. So to have one coin is kind of a big deal. It's still possible for a person to get one coin now, a regular person. It's not possible for all the regular people to get one coin because if they did, then it would no longer be possible. But it's certainly possible for a regular person to get it. In the short term, I want to just have a disclaimer. Obviously, I don't know where it's going. It could go down, get cut in half. Who the fuck knows? Short term, you know, the FTX, it came out that uh, SBF was shorting. Bitcoin selling Bitcoin he didn't own, <laughs> naked shorting it to keep the price below like twenty two thousand or something like that. So there's all these kind of manipulation is is going to happen, and you're going to have governments that are basically it's an ex, to whom it's an existential threat, and they'll do all sorts of things too to keep the price from expanding. But you know it's kind of like fighting gravity, fighting a black hole. It's like you can turn your engines on and try to fly away from it but once you pass the event horizon you're getting sucked in and i think we may have passed the event horizon especially with uh 33 and a half trillion in debt already for the u.s i don't know if uh there's a way to get out of that pretty sure there isn't but there's one more thing i was gonna say i was gonna end it but there's one more thing i did an nba fantasy draft with sasha last night and uh, it was really fun i had her research players for like a month and a half she likes the NBA. She's playing a lot of basketball, and um, we did a playoff pool last year, and it was fun. But this is obviously more involved. I ended up printing out the uh, ADP and sorting by position, and kind of framing it for her. Like, do we want this guy or this guy? We need blocks. We need rebounds. We need this. And so we did it. I wrote it up at RealMansports.com. I'm really curious. Like, I, I, you know, I haven't fought NBA in a long time. What people think of the team? Like, I have no idea. We drafted such an old team. Oh, this is another thing I want to actually mention. I'm going to write about this too. I just thought of another thing, but I'll hold that for a second. Um, But it was just really fun doing it with her, and she was super into it. Uh, And we got a bunch of old guys. Our first two picks were Curry and Durant. She wanted Curry over Doncic. I would have maybe gone Doncic, but I said I would give her the options, ADP-appropriate options, and let her make the call. So we have Curry. Second pick Durant fell to us in the uh, seventh pick of the second round. I guess it's like pick 19. Then we got round three, we took, what's his name, Miles Miles Turner in round three for blocks. Round four, we got Pascal Siakam. Round five, we got Paul George. Just a lot of old guys. We got uh, Russell Westbrook late because we had such good free throw shooting. We felt like we could take Westbrook. Kyle Lowry with the last pick. We just have a super old team, maybe because just because I've heard of all those guys. and I know who they are from back when I actually was playing fantasy basketball, but should be fun i hope our team doesn't suck and i'm really curious if any of you guys are fantasy basketball guys i want to get your feedback on how the team is um because it seems like it's good to me but i don't know shit about basketball anymore but it also made me think all these old guys at first i would never draft guys at 35 i mean tim duncan kg and maybe this is a for the sports podcast i'm doing later today with sis tim duncan kg they're like out of the league at 33 And now you've got Curry going in the first round and and Durant going in the first, second round, sometimes the first. At age 35 and LeBron, we could have taken LeBron in the fourth, we passed. And we really would have been old. You know, all these old guys playing and they're still like the stars of the game. And it reminds me of this thing, um, kind of tying into the whole theme of this podcast, that this, uh, I mentioned before, uh, Kapil Gupta said. And he said something to the effect of, you know, the greats, they'll never be greats anymore in sports like there were in the past and that the smartphone will kill more people than any virus, destroy more societies than any virus. And I think what he meant was this dopamine thing where, you know, you grow up with your brain being molded by this constant reward, this digital reward, you know, at least M&Ms have to be made and packaged and, you know, they have to like ship them and store them. I mean, they last forever and it's made of total fake shit, but at least you got to like, have a physical product, you know? So even if you got hooked on that dopamine, like, you know, and there was sort of some physical, you know, you would gain weight or whatever, if you ate too many. There was some sort of physical prevention your parents could do and whatever. But with the online dopamine, with the smartphone and social media, I mean, it's unlimited. I mean, it's just, they can endlessly supply this stuff. And you wonder if someone's brain who's been, mo- someone whose brain has been molded by that from a young age can they really be great? Can they really dedicate themselves in a way that just takes pain, right? I mean, re- really being the greatest of all time takes pain, not just working out hard, but the pain to feel and be in the truth, right? Be in the moment of truth, really be with whatever's there and, and be super aware as you're doing your sport, like what's going on and being willing to face whatever internally and externally completely, not just distracting it and going and checking Twitter, checking your email, checking a, whether you got a text. And the guys whose brains developed before that have a huge advantage because they they know what it's like to be in themselves to suffer that. And the people who've never really, you know, since they've been conscious, had that, the young kids, they're at a huge disadvantage. And so you wonder why Djokovic is still number one in the world at age, what, 36, when t- tennis players are usually done really by 30. And, you know, as I said, Garnett and Duncan were out of the league at like 33, but you still have all these old guys. I mean, obviously fitness and nutrition and there's more knowledge about that stuff, but it's not like, you know, people in the past didn't train hard and work out and try to eat right. I mean, there are a lot of guys like that, but it's almost like the old guys have like a brain advantage and these young guys are obviously more athletic and, you know, not going to get hurt as often and, you know, all the benefits of youth, but it's just strange that some of the top picks are that old in a bunch of different sports. You know Brady just retired. In his mid forties. It seems like sports. I don't know. It may not be every sport, and it's just a theory, but that um, this this problem of not being able to let go of this this hook that's in everybody is uh, is a ser- is is a serious one. And maybe you know maybe that explains why there's so many older athletes that are still elite way way longer than we're used to. All right, that's going to do it. Till next time.